This episode of Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by our friends at Dashlane, the form-filling, password-remembering, data-protecting, all-in-one application. We'll play that jingle. Dashlane, live life in the fast lane. Get yourself some cash lane, and you'll be living easy and free. Your internet experience could be so much better with Dashlane. Yes, friends, Dashlane. It autofills your login information, remembers your passwords, and keeps your online data safe. You can use it across devices, so even if you've made all of your passwords nightmarish, unpronounceable alphanumeric strings no human being can remember, Dashlane can help you access your logins from your computer or your phone. My little sister Julie uses our Hulu password now, but once upon a time, she used to use her ex-roommate's ex-boyfriend's brother's ex-girlfriend's Hulu password. Now you can use Dashlane to safely share your favorite streaming service passwords with your ex-roommate's ex-boyfriend's brother's ex-girlfriend, and you can also use the service to generate a new one when you get tired of their freeloading. Start dashing through the internet and help support the show by visiting dashlane.com rdr to start your 30-day free trial of Dashlane. No credit card required. If you like it, use code rdr at checkout to save 10% on your premium subscription. All right, on to the show. It's Halloween, and that means we contemplate the scariest thing of all, intimacy. <laughs> okay, it's November now, whatever. The point still stands, woo! This week, I got to sit down with Tozaman, creator of Caravan, for an intense, learned, not-safe-for-work discussion about workplace politics, sexualities, fetishized identities, and found family. Buckle up, kiddos, it's about to get heartfelt. I mean freaky. I mean both. I mean this is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I talked to Caravan's Tozaman back in September, armed with an absolute sheaf of newspaper clippings compiled by Heather. I, I say this not to frighten prospective interviewees, but if you've listened to the show, you know that we like to show up having done our homework. If we feature you, we want to know as much about you as we can. So when Heather showed me articles about Toe's time in student government from almost a decade ago, folks, you should have seen my little grinchy smile creeping uncannily up the sides of my face. Caravan covers a wide swath of topics, and so did we in this discussion. You'll hear us talking about student government, the novelistic origins of the show, the grandeur and terror of the West, Toe's burlesque character, the video game Pyre, which, Will, how good is Pyre, though? Y'all, Pyre is so good. Supergiant is just one of my favorite game studios out there. Pro actually, my favorite. My big favorite. Please play Pyre. It's so good. Even if you don't like basketball, play Pyre. It's so good. Right? Thank you. And Johnny Cash. Like, just that for starters. So we go in every possible direction, and I'm so grateful to Toe for being so open and smart about their life and their work. I really enjoyed this interview, but I will say we talk a lot about sex, so if you are at work or you're listening through speakers or you're in the car and your mother is, like, right there, maybe this is not the episode to listen to right now. Or maybe it is. Who knows? I don't know your life. Maybe you and your mother have spirited conversations about Judith Butler's gender trouble all the dang time, and you're not going to blush at a single thing Toe or I say. If so, great. With that warning issued, let's get right to it. Tozaman, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. In in an interview you did with Will Williams, uh, mm-hmm. you, you told them that Samir, the character, had existed in your head for something like a decade, well before you had decided on a genre for Caravan. Can you tell me about the origin of Samir and what you had intended for him originally? Sure. So, um, you know, back then I believed that I was going to be this wonderful, amazing, prolific um, novel writer, which um, now that we can see, you know, it has turned out incredibly well. But um, essentially, um, back then I was trying, I was trying to write a book. I was about maybe 17 at the time, and I was much more into superheroes than I am right now. So it was kind of um, a kick-ass-esque story about um, this um, South Asian kid who's, who was the same age that I was. So he was 17 at the time um who um kind of would get magical powers from these like costumes that he would make because he was um an avid cosplayer so he could always like switch them up like in between like missions and like make himself new costumes and get different powers um so 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 that was an idea that stuck with me for a long while and i and i kept writing it um as a as a novel pretty much well through college um and then um so, 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 so that was where, where he originated, at least. And then I, you know, when I started putting together Caravan about three years ago, it just made sense. Oh, wait, why don't I just use this character for, you know, a podcast in a format that I think is... Um, so much more accessible so um sure and i'm glad i aged him up as well so i guess he was the same age i guess he's the same age i am now but um it would have been really weird for him to still be a kid um but yeah yeah but 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 i think but i think it's telling that yeah his origin is essentially you know wherever i was in my life and kind of still is in that respect it's interesting that since samir began as a a novel character you have the opportunity to retain that internal subjective voice through through voiceover and through monologue for sure i have a question about college toe okay um speaking of so when when you attended emerson you were the vice president of the student government association and and heather dug up this article from 2011 where you and the president of the sga were pushing for a new constitution that wouldn't predetermine the percentage of money that the student newspaper got from student activity fees and i i was i was reading this and i thought like holy shit even college toe was on fucking top of their game oh my goodness so, <laughs> like with with this in mind I, I'd like to ask you about Daddy. Okay, that is such an interesting transition. Because the the demonic advisory for diversity and inclusion is this force that successfully hamstrings Ball's armies and prevents him from wiping out the protagonists in Ring of Fire. And so my question is, what can you tell me about your experience in student government and later in working for a university that informed Daddy the way Ball perceives it and the way Virgil benefits from it? That's such a great question. So um, I don't know how much of a chance you've had to look into that whole constitutional amendment, but it was like one of the most, you know, stressful sagas of my life because essentially... I mean, it sounded very hotly contested. It was, yeah. So actually it was, um, it had the highest um, recorded history of um, college turnout. So about, I think about like over 30% of the college voted on it. And um, so, uh-huh. so, it was, so it was the highest turnout. It was very contentious. And um, essentially what the constitutional amendment was requiring was that all students 
students, um, all, all student organizations have to apply for funding, right? So, um, and this came about because basically one organization was just guaranteed um, 8% of the entire student budget, um, no matter how big it got, and then, you know, wasn't really required to provide any accountability as to what that money was being Right, they on. didn't really need to have a budget, right? right? And, 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 you know, what that resulted in um, was a lot of people, particularly, you know, the, the students in that organization who obviously run the school newspaper, uh, believing that, you know, obviously, you know, e- even though this amendment was written by the president and I was just vice president for that semester, everyone knew to pin it on me somehow. So, like, there were all these, like, horrible, like, cartoons drawn of me, like, in the paper oh every week. And people, uh, yeah, people were like, Tozaman is crushing free speech. And then they would, like, call up their contacts at, like, the White House and Mother Jones and, like, have them email me about, like, what a horrible person I was. Um, and then, um, well, anyway, it passed. Uh, so... Yeah, yeah, you, you won. So, yeah, so, so, so that happened. And then, um, then the job, basically, at the end of that semester, the president um, resigned. So pre- so I just kind of became the de facto president and then ran again to be the full year president the year after that, which was my senior year. So it was. So I've always, um, so governance has always been something that's important to me, but it's also something that I've, that I've been personally harangued by, I guess. So, um, yeah. so, when I, so, you know, to tie it back to your question about daddy, I think um, I, I wanted there to be this um, manifestation of a well-meaning gover- governing body that can still um, uh, be extremely um, detrimental to your long-term aims. And obviously, you know, these are demons, so their long-term aims are probably nefarious, so daddy is probably a wholly good idea, or at least that's what it looks like right now. Um, but but I just I, I just felt that same very conflicted relationship um, in any, in kind of any um, office that I've held. So I was a political communications major, which is basically just a fancy way of saying um, a BS in, um, in politics. Wow. Or Bachelor of Science politics um and i just i I was convinced that i was going to be like this novelist and i was going to like run for office and like now i have no interest in being in any type of job that people have to vote me into um so um i've been happy to move away from that back to you and in a way back to will um so you told will in the February interview that so many of the interactions in Caravan are drawn from your own life and your own experiences. And I think that we'll cover plenty about how much toe there is in Samir and to some extent how much toe there is in Virgil, but I'd like to hear about the parts of you that exist within the other protagonists who are in the script referred to, you know, as the good guys, you know, Dakota, Argo, Banshee, and Miguel. I would say it's much easier to point to, you know, Samir and Virgil as people that, you know, obviously have manifestations of me in it. Um, as far as the um, side characters go, particularly Argo and Dakota, I think Argo is an interesting one because at least in my personal life, I've never seen myself as a hero or a protagonist in anything. I always imagined myself as this kind of ancillary character that follows along. So this very telling example is um, a few years ago, a friend asked me, you know, would you want to be the doctor or would you want to be the companion? And I just always would fantasize about being the companion because I could never even fathom the idea of being And when we, when we say doctor here, we're referring know? to um, Doctor Who specifically, not... yeah. 
Yes, sorry, I should have, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do, so like in, do, in Doctor Who, for folks who aren't familiar, there is a Doctor who is this, like, primary, um, you know, protagonist, and then there are different companions who rotate in and out of the series that are kind of these ancillary characters that serve as foils for the Doctor to, you know, show off his wonderful qualities or reveal his, you know, less exciting ones. But I always envisioned myself in that supporting role, and that's something I've just had all through my life, like, whether it was, like, picking, like, healers and video games or whatnot, or just, like, working as very various um, assistants in different professional capacities. I just never was able to envision myself um, in a more heroic capacity. And Argobe is really a way to kind of create this doctor-esque um, romantic lead for the show in a way. Um, and I don't mean romantic necessarily in like the like emotional love sense. but In the literary in the, sense. Yeah, in the literary right. sense, exactly. Sure. Um, so in that kind of like grandiose, like Don Quixote-esque sense. Um, so so it, was, it was a really a way for me to kind of play out that fantasy and you know to kind of talk like what i think a cowboy would talk like uh which would be absolutely hilarious if i actually you know attempted it so it was a way for me to um, manifest myself in argo that way um as far as dakota goes you know um so you know it's hard because dakota is somebody i wrote with danielle shamaya in mind but um there are so many things about her character that i'm excited to explore in season two now that we have a little more of our footing but really what she was born from was um you know i, I think the, the the kindest compliment i have ever received um was from a good um burlesque performer a friend of mine jolie lovey and she said you know what benji uh, that, that's my stage name she goes you know what benji you got some black girl magic in you and i was just like okay that is not the thing i could ever say about myself <laughs> right. but that is definitely the highest compliment i've ever gotten hot damn uh, so, I, so, so yeah exactly so so i was like you know i i, I really do see dakota as um kind of a, ma- a, a way to manifest um that black girl magic and show it off and i think danielle um just does it so so well and i'm really really excited for uh, what she's going to get to do in the coming season so 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 you know obviously banshee is a woman character but um you know especially like all of her lines about um you know like the the rage of being a woman in a world and how and and and, you know how she can't you know even banshees can't be angry forever and she has to let it come in waves you know so it can sustain her because you know otherwise a flame just becomes numb to her so you know i I think that is obviously a very um trauma informed response and then as far as miguel goes i would say um i i would say there's not a whole lot of me in him i envision a lot of miguel in me in like a very like as it were sense sure yeah as it were um yeah i think i i I think he's I, i i think he you know it really is born of a fantasy that um, I don't always see people like myself in. Uh, so, you know, I was just like, you know, what if the, you know, you know like, if, I don't know if you watch like Vampire Diaries or like True Blood or, um, but, but, you know, all those shows or like even Twilight, but like all those shows, like the vampires basically only are interested in other people who could make really hot vampires. And I was just like, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, so I just, so I was just like, well, what if the, you know, what if the vampire was into, you know, a portly brown person, sure. uh, uh, you know, and thus Miguel was born. So um, I, yeah, I guess, I guess in his sense, it would be like more of a wish fulfillment thing. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it absolutely does. And that actually kind of, that propels me into my next question, which treats on something that you and Ellie talked about when they interviewed you in March of this year. Mm -hmm. So you talked about as a kid, you, you would watch the Disney Davy Crockett serials that got edited into like a whole feature film at oh, two yeah. in the morning mm-hmm. and of this like grand romantic colonizer impulse to take a chunk of the earth and make it your own. But the marginalized characters in the Disney version of the West never get internal monologues. The camera flattens them and takes away their subjectivity. 
And so I'd like you to tell me what it means to you to make a queer, brown, chubby character the subject, the protagonist in a genre that carries all of these hallmarks of American colonial whiteness. Well, um, I I feel like you just did it very well in the question. So I'm trying to think of, you know, what else I could add to it. Um, But I would say, um, you you know, I want to emphasize that, yes, you know, Samir is obviously a queer brown person that is like, you know, non-thin and that's an important representation to have. But, you know, as far as like Argo and Dakota go, like also like, you know, just like black and brown lives and, you know, indigenous people were also erased from those Westerns and um, even more conspicuously so uh, because... You know, right. I, I mean, find, so many like, cowboys were black and Mexican. Right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, so many, so much, so much cowboy language comes from Spanish. Yeah, like they, they like they, like they, like they were literally the original cowboys. So, so, so I, I, and you know, I've tried very hard to find historical examples of South Asian cowboys or South Asian people just like in Western frontiers, and it has been extremely difficult. Uh, so, 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 mm-hmm. um, so, so, like on on the part of Samir, it's wish fulfillment, but I think on the part of like Dakota and Argo and other characters in the show, it is kind of more. Um, just doing, trying, or at least trying to do right by erased populations um, in a genre that has so much romance and is so um, inextricably tied to Americana, but um, has kind of historically excluded those people from that um, sense of adventure for a very long time. Um, That doesn't mean I do it right. That doesn't mean I'm portraying the characters right. You know, obviously, you know, they're we're in um, a, a cultural moment right now where it's really important that people get to tell their own stories, but I just felt like it would be extremely irresponsible of me to not have black, brown, and indigenous people um, in a Western story that I was telling. Can, can we talk about Benji Bombay for a minute? Yeah, sure. Okay, so that's your recently retired burlesque character. That's right. And it's such a a particular clash of ideas embodied in one character, right? Like, there's that white guy first name, the colonial name from Mumbai, and all of this in a medium designed for witness, desire, and consumption. Can you tell me... That's exactly right. Can you tell me what you what you wanted to accomplish with that character? Like, what was, what was he for? Well, you know, I, I, when I first started, it was really just to kind of do something that scares me. So about maybe... Five years ago, I'm very big on New Year's resolutions, and you know, one of my resolutions was do something that terrifies you, which I think was a piece of advice that I think maybe Lupita Nyong'o had made at the time. And I thought, oh wow, that's just so good. Yeah, I'm going to do something that terrifies me. So I said, well, what's more terrifying than you know stripping in front of hundreds of strangers? So I signed up for this amateur competition, and you know, Benji wasn't really a character at that time. Um, so it was more just yeah, trying to pick out that um that really dissonant name with the you know the affable white boy name you know set opposite um you know a colonial term so so at that time i hadn't really developed the character but then as i kind of um did have this separation between my performance life and my day-to-day life um i started to notice that character existed a little more um uh i guess a, a little more solidly for lack of a better word and i've always kind of believed that alter egos are kind of for hacks like i just don't like i i've always thought alter egos were a silly idea um but but as i kind of talked through it in therapy a little bit more often i just noticed that there were so many differences between like who benji is and who i am and where i realized is that what i realized is that benji is essentially um my kind of dark side so benji represents a lot of things that i would never do as a person and represents a lot of things that i would never say as a person 
um, and is a way to express that kind of like a like a black swan esque uh, character, um, which definitely ties a lot into Caravan because I think one of the themes of Caravan, you know, especially with Echoes, is we have you know this ongoing fragmentation of identity. So you know we see that, you know, and then we see you know with, with Banshee entering Samir's heart and with Miguel entering Samir's heart, um, just how a person can be. Um, changed by, influenced by, or even you know broken by having other identities inside them. Um, so 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 yeah, Benji ben was definitely um, an exercise in that. And um, pe- people have asked if I'm ever going to go back into performing. Um, I've said that I, I, there are a couple of you know really special shows I love with producers I really love that I agreed to um, you know next year. But I think I'll probably kill Benji for it and you know just do it as a completely different character because um, I think I've gotten what I want out of him. I totally forget a little bit, that but I think you just did. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, let's go. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. No, if you if you had something to say, please. We're just gonna sip some water real quick. Oh, okay. Okay. So back to burlesque. I want to ask you about sure. Mama Bang Bang. Um, oh sure. Because I, I so I see that Mama Bang Bang is an MC at Rogue Burlesque, and I love that her credit in the show is Mama Bang Bang as herself. Can you tell me oh, yeah. how different her MC character is from the character that she plays in the show, and how you integrated her into it? You know, I think that would be a question she would answer better than I would. Okay. But I would say I, 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 I would I would say um, there is pretty high fidelity between the two. Um, so the way I ended up meeting Mama Bang Bang was, you know, doing one of those amateur competitions. So like again, like years ago when I was still doing those, um, she was emceeing one that Rogue Burlesque puts on called the Lucky Thirteen competition. And you know, I, I, that was my first time meeting Mama Bang Bang, and she was saying, "Oh, like, do you want me to like gas you up? Like, how do you want me to introduce you?" And then you know, she completely scrapped all those notes and just had people in stitches with something else entirely and um, I just loved how she played with people's expectations and completely subverted them in you know um, dirty hilarious ways but (laughs) could also um, carry also carry herself with so much class because she's just a wonderful lady that even when she says like the crudest things it's never um, it it, it never rubs anyone the wrong way I don't think so Um, yeah so I got I I got to do shows with her for uh, years after that but when um, she was actually considering um, taking a break from stage performance for a while I reached out to her I think maybe a year ago or two years ago I forgot I think maybe like November 2017 and I said hey um, there's this character called Mama Bang Bang in a show that I would love to have um, and I would love for you to play her because I love your voice um, and I'm gonna I, you know I obviously I obviously had to write lines for her so um, I, I I'm hoping that I'm doing right by her um, I think she would be able to answer that better I think um, maybe one of the biggest differences is that the mama bang bang that we meet in episode five and six uh is much more scandalized by certain things that (laughs) real life mama bang bang is obviously not of course um but i think but 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 i think um as we as we get deeper into the canyon everybody's outer layers get peeled away Mm -hmm. more and more so i think we'll get much closer to real mama bang bang um as we go along with the show Okay, this next one comes with kind of a big wind-up, so I want you to bear with me here. Yeah, sure. Um, so, in in preparation for this interview, I, I, I was I've been reading a couple of different articles over the past few days, and the first one was was by John Paul Brammer, the author of the Ola Papi advice column. 
Uh, and that one was about authenticity and the pressure he feels to perform his Chicano identity for white consumption, uh, especially as regards food. The article is from this May, and it's called, I'm from a Mexican family. Stop expecting me to eat quote unquote authentic food. It was in the Washington Post. Right. Um, and the other one mm-hmm. I stumbled upon by accident the other day after reading Judith Butler's takedown of Barry Weiss's book in Jewish Currents. Um, it was an article by a New York burlesque performer named Fancy Feast, uh, entitled... Oh, I love Fancy Feast. Maybe, you, oh, maybe you've read oh, this. Sorry. sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I, I read a lot of what she puts out. So ma- yeah, maybe you've read this, which will make this easier. It, uh, the, the piece was called On Being a Fetish, and it was largely about men wanting to have sex with, if not her exactly, her Judaism. Um, and I was wondering if I could read you an excerpt from that essay, and you tell me how it strikes you. Ah, yes, please. Okay. Quote, No one who has wanted to fuck my Judaism has figured this out yet. No one has asked my consent. No one has yet understood that in their fetish, they flatten me, bend my narrative to a stereotype to satisfy their will. In other words, no one who has tried out their Jewish fetish on me has adequately acknowledged its problem. These men have a preference for a me, but not me. A me whose story is collaged together from movies, TV, porn... These men come with a sweaty script in their hands. They see in me an actress who fits the description and nothing more. And first, I want to see how that strikes you and if that resonates with you in any way. Um, it, yeah, it, def- it definitely does. Um, it's not fun to be fetishized. I guess I, you know, it's one of those things I, I would take Fancy Feast's wor- word on only because I, I don't really exactly know what it means to um be fetishized as a Jewish person, obviously. Right, right, right. right. Um, r- 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 um, and I'm trying to imagine, like, what do people even fetishize about a religion? Like, I don't, like, like, I, like, I can understand, like, you know, with Christianity, like, maybe people have, like, sexy nuns or whatever, but, like, I don't even know what Jew, like, Jewish fetishism looks like. It's, um, it's, it's a specific... a ignorant in that regard. Like, as, as oriented around, like, white Ashkenaz Jewry and, like, how... The men are kind of Woody Allenified and oversexed and neurotic, and the women are kind of like uptight. But if you can like crack them, they'll be wild. Um, oh, for I, sure. I, I guess yeah. I, I I wanted to bring that up um, because I I wanted to talk about Samir's journey towards realizing that he is desirable, and about the idea of allowing yourself to be desired without becoming an object. Uh, yeah, so um, you know, so to tie it back to you know my reactions to fancy feasts, but I think um, it's definitely more complicated because I think um, yes, obviously you know fetishization has this flattening effect um, that can you know reduce people to objects, but also at the same time, um, depending on who you are, um, you know fetishization might be the only way that um, you kind of experience any intimacy or physical contact with other people. So right. um, I would say you, you know as, as a you know, non-thin brown person myself, um, uh, you know, who, you know, you know, was raised Muslim and like, well, you know, obviously as an immigrant, uh, you know, I think there were a lot of things that people perceive as, you know, innately, you know, dirty or undesirable about those things, at least in the the United States. Um, In Europe, South Asian people have a more like rakish stereotype, whereas in the United States, they're like completely like de-sexed. So, you know, so really kind of the only ways that you could find anybody who was, you know, who thought you were desirable was usually as a fetish and um you know when you're really you know lonely a lot of times you'll you'll be willing to put up with a lot you know to to just feel wanted and i think that's a feeling that samir is very familiar with um so so 
And I don't know if it's inherently morally wrong. Obviously, it's harmful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I also don't know if people can be punished for thought crimes, you know? Like like uh, like I like I think people are also products of their environments. Um, so I think as long as you know uh, all parties are very aware of you know what you know what fetishization is happening and are kind of cognizant, um, I hope that they can kind of just you know derive from it you know whatever you know pleasure they can um yeah in general it's something that makes me cringe but like there's not a whole lot i can do about it i feel like i think i think it could be really interesting and liberating if all parties are aware of what is happening it's not it's not you know it's not necessarily for me but it's it's i don't know it it feels like it's something that a person could for lack of a better word, ride, uh, if if everyone is equally aware of it in the encounter. Nicole Byer has this wonderful podcast called Why Won't You Date Me? And on it, she talks about how um, she also feels like a lot of times she is um, only found desirable as a fetish. So she talks about how, you know, if a guy tells me he wants to fuck me, then I know he is into like all of this. So she talks about how, you know, fatness is fetishized, but also blackness is fetishized um, and how those two things can be tied together. And, you know, and, you know, we have you, we have images of fatness and blackness, you know, throughout our history that have often been stereotyped really horribly so so i think um you know she, she's talked about complicated feelings around that too and i think that also kind of reminds me that yeah it's not just about you know samir's brownness but i think sometimes like people can feel fetishized like for other aspects of their identity whether it's you know their body size or um even in so much as like having an accent or whatnot what does it mean to be a demon fucker <laughs> okay that's a great question thank you um so so um, and I, and I, and I don't, and I promise this is like not a stalling tactic. Can I, can I first ask you what you think it means? Cause I, I guess I'm more curious from, from like a person who's like not on the caravan team, like what their understanding of it is. Well, it, it kind of depends based on where you are in the story. Like when you don't understand that the demons are themselves humans are you know like when when you don't understand the demons as ontological subjects in the same way right it it makes it different it 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 makes it like an exotic brush with danger and once you understand that demons are people then it's just connection it's just the same kind of sex that you would have with anybody else i think um okay but but there hmm I don't know, but like this is this is so difficult for me to really wrap my head around being being straight, like especially because of the conversation that Samir and Dakota have as regards like prophylactics, right? Oh yeah, um, right. Like barebacking is not really like a a straight culture thing, you know. There's not that kind of like right yeah. thrill. In the same way, it's not. It's not something. It's something that is very distant from my experience. And so, like, I I hear that, and and I think, well, okay, this isn't this isn't about me. So I can't like exactly ident. You know? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I understand it intellectually. So, um, yeah, I would say I, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. So, you know, as far as you know, Samir and Dakota go, they're talking about a very queer experience, and um, you know 
queerness is inherently, um, you know, deviant. So like, that's like the definition of the word queer. So right. um, their, their sexual desires are always going to be deviant. And, um, and anything that you pursue that is deviant is also inherently dangerous. So, you know, I think any person who has grown up um, as a queer person and then had queer sex at some point early on in their life um, knew how wrong it was and then kind of just had this moment in their head where they're like, well, I'm just going to kick up my heels and do it anyway, right? Because um, that it's just like a very specific experience that like, yeah, if, if you're um, heterosexual and have never, you know, experimented with anything, it's hard to uh, explain. But I think, yeah, there's a certain liberative aspect of it that's very radical. Um, but also there are so many conversations going on, you know, within the queer community about, you know, how to pursue that, you know, that connection with each other safely, right? Because, you know, we had the, the, the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. And I feel like that's a trauma which still hasn't really been recognized right. in the queer community or resolved just yet. But, um, you know, now we have the advent of PrEP, which allows you, which does allow you to essentially bear back with people, even though it's not recommended. And, you know, you're still told, you know, use a condom, get tested every three months. Um, but, you know, we, people do feel like, oh, wow, this like actually frees me up to like not, you know, to not fear, um, you know, contracting HIV every single time I'm intimate with someone. But it also is liberating for people who do live with it, right. um, you know, because we're kind of, you know, we're destigmatizing it. We're showing it's not a death sentence. We're showing, you know, that you can essentially reduce your viral load to nearly zero percent chance of transmitting it and also um, nearly zero percent chance of contracting it so um so 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 they bring that up in care so they bring that up in care right. but um yeah they're they're definitely talking about that queer experience but de but the existence of demons and demon fucking is definitely a very on the nose way of showing how dangerous and deviant it is um and i think as far as your question like what does it mean to be a demon fucker i think there's like a large spectrum right so there are people who think being a demon fucker means like oh yeah obviously like i would fuck a vampire because like vampires are hot but then like one step below that is like okay but who would fuck a werewolf right and like who would fuck a werewolf like in werewolf form you know like does that make you like a zoophile does that make you like a furry like what does that mean and then like i mean isn't there like a grand tradition of mapping queer desire onto the monstrous like like liking liking the beast better than than the prince in beauty and the beast right like liking him more in his beast form than in his than in his human form but really, is that because he's bestial, or is that just because we see the real human prince for like three seconds? You know, like I, like I, like I, like I, th I think you know, mapping queerness onto it, it definitely happens. But I also feel like demon fucking has a long tradition of of written history also being in you know heterosexual dynamics, right? So you know, like like there are like there are so many documents of you know women trying to summon demons to try to have sex with them, and or you know we have also mm -hmm. you know you know incubi who are obviously invented by the Catholic Church to you know like cover up rapes essentially so you know you know so so so, the, so there are heterosexual inter, you know our relationships between humans and demons as well um but sure. i think even that is still like almost an inherently like even if it's heterosexual i feel like it's still inherently queer and in that it's deviant um even though it might not be like capital q queer as we talk about it as a, a political agenda today um but but yeah, so like going back to like the spectrum, you're, you know, so you have like vampires, which is like very easy, like you're basically fucking a human. You have like werewolves,
Wolves like a step below that, but like, okay, but like how many people are just like into like eldritch horrors, right? Like, would you like, like what if someone's like, got to be? Thing? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, you know, like people, like people have seen hentai, right? Like, like what if it's just a tentacle monster? Like, would you or wouldn't mm-hmm. you? So I feel, so I right. feel like as these characters descend into the canyon, I've kind of had to slowly kind of like introduce these ideas gradually as much as I would have loved to, you know, come busting out the stables, you know, as, as crazy as the show can be. I, I kind of wanted to get people acclimated to that idea that you know there are people here with deviant desires that they are going to indulge in and you know package it in a way that's at least sort of palatable at first at least until they can buy into what the rest of the show is about and understand that sure yes it's bonker like like yes it's like gonzo crazy and like hypersexualized but um there are reasons for it and there are story you know there are story justifications for it and it's always done in a way to show um how characters you know move through the world and interact with each other and never just kind of for um an exploitative purpose um or at least that's my hope for it um so yeah so 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 that's what it means to be a demon fucker for me no i think it's so powerful awesome thank you every episode of caravan is titled after a johnny cash song can you tell me about your relationship with the music of johnny cash Sure. You know, I, I, I wish I, I wish I could say I had a much deeper relationship with Johnny Cash's music than I do. You know, I wish I said, oh, yeah, like, you know, my mom and pops, you know, put this on the vinyl when I was six or whatever. Um, but, I, but but the truth is, um, I, I, I didn't really get it. I didn't really get exposed to much, uh, you know, like, like, like classical, like classical American, like rock, folk and blues and country. Um, until much later in my adulthood. But um, when I was doing my, my research for um, p- putting together Caravan, you know, I had all these like v- like vision boards essentially, and I was trying to build in something that was not just Western, but also something that was Southern Gothic. And when I thought about Southern Gothic, you know, obviously it has a lot large preoccupation with Christianity and, you know, with holiness and, you know, a relationship with the devil and how you're constantly, you know, battling him off. And, you know, I know that Johnny Cash sings about that all the time. Uh, so, so, you know, I thought, okay, well, you know, here, here's a person who's obviously thought about this a lot and has a lot of songs about it. So I kind of just listened to a lot of his music and, you know, some of it I really like and some of it, a lot of it I really don't like. And there are things about, you know, him as a person, you know, that you can take, you know, one way or another. Um, so, mm-hmm. so it's definitely not like an outright endorsement, but um, I wanted these titles to be almost... Um, uh, like a like not not an appetizer like uh, I'm trying to think of but, but but basically something that kind of gives you a lens into the rest of the episode in a little way um, but can yeah. also just be like a fun thing you recognize also there are some hilarious Johnny Cash song titles um, so I'm, I I can't promise you there won't be an episode titled the Silver Hair Daddy of Mine um, <laughs> which is a song of his he also has another one called Everybody Loves a Nut. Um, yeah, so he's just got like so many great titles. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So, 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 um, I think it'll be much. I, I think like the punchline side of it will be uh, much clearer later on. Um, yeah. But for now, but for now, I think it's just kind of a, a way to um, set tone and mood, um, and kind of put together this um, pastiche of themes by relying on your associative mind a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you and I discussed this offline a while ago but can you remind me um because i feel like you listen to a bunch of different versions of riders in the sky right oh yeah did you have a particular favorite oh that is such a good question um there are um yeah so basically my my favorite cover of riders in the sky is actually like um 
like a cover that somebody did on YouTube, so I can send you the link afterward. But be, yeah, so be, okay. yeah, so basically, I just love like remixes of it, covers of it. Um, I've done a burlesque number to it. Like I just love the concept of the wild hunt and um, kind of like the moral reckoning a person has by seeing something you know supernatural in the sky descending on them. And um, yeah, so I yeah, there's there are many many different versions of it. Um, the the theme behind the song is definitely not new and not unique to Johnny Cash, right? That, you know, the concept of the wild hunt goes back, you know, at least to, at least as early as ancient Greeks, as far as I know. So, um, so, so uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of something ancient and, um, something that, sets the tone for the rest of the show you know you start with episode one of caravan and you listen to it and it's like this like sad friendship love story and it's not really clear at all why it's called a caravan like why the show is called that and then at the very end it's like oh oh, by the way here's why it's called caravan and kind of shows you (laughs) by the way there's this whole other world and he falls into it right now um so yeah that's kind of um where we're at with that song speaking of the title of the show i have another big, dumb, long wind-up question. Um, Sure. So I have three thoughts about the use of the word caravan as the title of this show. Here's the first one. Uh, Caravan comes from Arabic. It's a word that comes to English through French because of the Crusades, but it has this connotation of merchants or pilgrims traveling specifically through a desert. Right. Mm-hmm. I imagine either like the Taklimakan Desert in Central Asia or the Rub al-Khali in Saudi Arabia or the Sahara in Northern Africa. But you've put it, this caravan in the American Southwest. That's thought number one. Thought number mm-hmm. two, at the time that caravan initially came out in January of this year, seemingly forever ago, right? Um, yeah. the, the migrant caravan from the Northern Triangle countries was still in the news because it was something that the, the GOP had been hyping nonstop, right? Of dangerous migrants, quote unquote, from El Salvador and Guatemala. And they're in this terrifying, you know, immense caravan coming to, quote unquote, invade the United States by claiming asylum at the U.S.-Mexico That's border. Right. Yeah. So that inherently made me view any caravan in the show as sympathetic, heroic, brave, and in the context of our racist garbage administration and country, doomed. And a third thought, Jesus, sorry, um, is... No, no, please. Okay. I love this. You've like you've like researched it so well that I feel like like yeah, again, like a lot of the answers in the question. I'm like, okay, yeah, great. You already know where the word is from and all this stuff. So well, yeah, a third great. connotation is the association of like Romani peoples with traveling in caravans, and so now we have this word that both suggests a conveyance of wealthy merchants and the dispossessed. This Arabic word transposed to a North American context. And a word that presupposes travel through dangerous surroundings. Is that, have I grabbed onto any of the ideas that, that motivated the title of the show? Uh, yeah, most certainly. Um, I think, um, I, I would think the only thing that's maybe um, just like a really slight additional point is just that um caravans have this tendency to pick up people along the way and people also get off along the way and you can kind of just put together a really ragtag um ever expanding list of tag alongs mm-hmm. which is just a, a thing that also is obviously going to happen in the show but um yeah so you know if you look on a map obviously you know the middle east and south asia are right next to each other and you know south like it's hard to explain for folks who aren't south asian or middle eastern but basically there is just so much overlap between those two cultures that 
Um, it, it it feels very natural to me to use an Arabic word that can also apply to Romani people because you know obviously Romani people are South Asian diasporic, right? right? So um, it, so so it definitely points to you know that you know that um, instance of you know disenfranchisement and dispossession, but also um, still has this historical root to a certain set of um, aesthetics and a certain um, culture um, in a very specific part of the world. So as far as you know, to, as far as um, associations with you know moving through deserts and having and me instead having put it kind of in this american southwest uh right that's very true um so so the the reason it's in the south american southwest is because i i definitely wanted to do a western um i think i am not yet creative enough to write a western that takes place only in saudi arabia Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i don't know how to do that um but 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 yeah so I i wanted it to be a western i wanted it to take place in the united states and i feel like at least people have an association of like what the grand canyon looks like so they can kind of envision it in their head and then um but but what will happen is like you know there's a lot of text in the show that talks about just how the canyon keeps getting bigger and bigger the deeper you go into it um to the point where i I mean i don't think i'm spoiling anything by saying like like there there are parts in the canyon where it literally is a desert like like you can like look on your left and right and you don't even see the walls Hmm. of the canyon anymore because you're essentially like in a place that is indistinguishable from being out on an open like land Um, so yeah, so 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 I, so so yes, it's in a very specific place, like geographically. But I feel like as far as terrain goes, um, just by nature of being a fantastical place, they'll be able to see a lot. Um, and um, as far as um, the associations with the migrant caravan, yeah, that was nightmarish because obviously I had pitched the show long before that, and I obviously didn't want to distract from important conversations that were happening about the migrant caravan. Um, so so that was why it was important to me to always stylize the show in capital letters so people know that at least we're not talking about you know a migrant caravan um but also um you know as one of our like patreon stretch goals like i've talked with our team about how um like like, essentially when we reach a certain amount of money i forget exactly what the amount is might be like 1100 or something uh, we're basically also going to be making monthly donations to like the real world caravans essentially so putting money towards um towards um I don't want to say just races, right? Because that's everybody's like kind of default uh, charity, but essentially causes that advocate for people um, through our country's immigration system and um, who battled the injustices that they face every day. Um, I just don't, I just don't think we get to be a show called caravan and not think about those people. So, um, so, so um, yeah, like it's just important to me that we make it clear to people that that's, an association we're cognizant of and not just cognizant of but inspired by and like trying to show a hopefully optimistic view of um yeah so i think that's yeah i think that's about it what what is it about the western landscape that appeals to you as a setting for the show that's a great question. Um, I would say that number one, I am like not an outdoorsy person in the least. Um, mm-hmm. So I like hate bugs. I hate discomfort. I am um, an extremely sweaty person because I have like a <laughs> like an overactive thyroid. So like okay. I sweat all the time um, from like any exertion whatsoever. So like I really just like don't like being out and about. Um, however, uh, the, like you know, as so much of the show is wish fulfillment, uh, you know, this is kind of a way for me to also uh, you know try out what that would be like you know in the very first episode you know samir talks about oh like this place is like obviously just a big bunch of allergies for people 
like like in this dust bowl right um and then he kind of like sniffles a little bit but then he doesn't have allergy problems like you know while he's in the rest of the canyon uh so so you know he's kind of changed you know at least somewhat supernaturally in that way so i kind of wanted to just show like what would it be like if you could you know if not only were you know people of color welcome in these spaces but you know could thrive in them right because like like they have this whole exchange in the begin in the beginning of the season where you know Samir talks about how like brown people don't go chasing Bigfoot or you know they're right. not especially like crunchy types who go hiking or whatnot. I did not know at the time it was going to be so controversial, um, but uh, but yeah, there's there you know there um, there's this wonderful article called Why Don't Black People Hike or I, I think the title is something very similar to that. But yeah, yeah it kind of talks about just like how outside magazine is. right. It it may have been yeah. um, I like I like every, everything is funneled to me like through the internet so like it, to me it's just like a thing I saw on Twitter once <laughs> sure um, but yeah but I, yeah it, it, it might have been but but yeah I just wanted to show like okay well these people have histor- so we already know these people have been historically erased from these settings but also there are real world reasons why they're not in them now so what would it be like to see them in there um, and also just as far as you know drawing on my background from novel writing. Uh, you know it's just it's long form prose it gives you a long it gives you a lot more space to you know write beautiful descriptions and um you know write write about you know like the egg like the egg like oozing you know sunset in the horizon or whatnot um and it allows people to be poetic in a way that they wouldn't be out loud you know like that's nothing samir would ever say out loud but that's right. something you know you can say in narration so in a way that you know it's, it's it's a way that the setting allows for a lush environment that you can describe and in doing so reveal something about the interiority of the characters without you know necessarily breaking character if that makes sense um there's there are a lot of references to video games in Caravan, and and you've talked about those elsewhere, especially Red Dead Redemption, oh, yeah. uh, and Diablo, the hellbound dungeon crawler of our childhoods, gets explicitly shouted out. Oh yeah, uh, on the show. Um, quick side question for that: How how old were you when you first attempted to play Diablo? Do you remember? Oh, um, I would say maybe like seven. Um, so, so so like maybe maybe like seven or eight. I have to say. So my first one, my first exposure to it was actually Diablo two. Um, so it wasn't. Yeah. So I so I forget exactly like what year that came out. Was it like maybe two thousand two or something? Because then I might have been like ten. Um, basically, whenever Diablo two came out was like my first exposure to it. Because my first exposure was like original Diablo, and I have this very particular memory of just the butcher scaring the living oh, yeah. shit out of me. And then I never, ret- I didn't return to that game until I was an undergraduate. Oh yeah, like fresh meat is like a very like triggering like phrase. Right. But, yeah, yeah, no, but, ah. but, but I but I did go back and like watch like playthroughs of like old Diablo, and like I like my cousins played it obviously, so like I knew that it existed, but I didn't really start playing it until sure. Diablo two. Um, but yeah, sorry, yeah, there are definitely video game references in it. So, so that was all sort of a sub, like a sidebar to my real question, which is that I want to talk about Pyre. The people got to know oh, about yeah. Pyre, though. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Pyre, a game that definitely can, has nothing to do with caravans or at all. Can we can we talk about Pyre for a hot minute? I can talk about Supergiant Games for five ever. Yes. <laughs> um. So Pyre, I, the way I would describe it is that it is a found family basketball p- 
political intrigue RPG accurate? What would how would you how would, would you describe say, that game? I, I would say that's very close. Um, I didn't. I I would feel. I, I felt that the um, political intrigue aspect of it was pretty thin. Um, in addition to, mm-hmm. I, I also didn't find it particularly RPG esque, aside from like a couple of dialogue options. Um, but I think everything else sure. about it is definitely right. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's definitely like the only kind of basketball I would ever enjoy. I mean, without getting like too much into the mechanisms of the game, the way the way it works is that you are kind of the team manager for a group of like transdimensional convicts almost that are playing this ritual game of of three on three basketball, basically. Um, and and then you travel across these blasted lands in. Uh, in what's called a black wagon, like some kind of either combustion engine powered or pseudo magical wagon that is significantly larger on the outs- on the inside. Oh yeah, it's like uh, it's definitely got like TARDIS qualities. Yeah, and the game is just full of these wonderful archetypes, and everybody has like a different skill, and everybody contributes in a different way. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask, what is it about that game that resonated with you and made it a thing you wanted to pull from to build the show? I would say the big. I would say yeah, the the experience of playing Pirate, which I feel like I beat it in like seven hours. Like Super Giant games are always like kind of disappointingly short. Um, yeah, right. so yeah, so definitely like the concepts of you know nomadism and found family and um, you know a. a class of um you know undesirable people living somewhere below earth or like heaven proper um are obviously big commonalities i think what will become if i can hint at it, i would say what will become more apparent is how similar um samir might be to somebody who plays as kind of that team manager or the protagonist in pyre um, yeah, so I, so I would say those are definitely some of the similarities. Um, the the wagon, obviously, you know, feeling bigger on the inside, and especially once we get into like the the wagon in Samir's dreams, right, which is so much bigger. Um, you know, like it definitely has those qualities along with Pyre. But um, I, I feel like the music was a really big um, inspiration for it, and like we totally like tagged Darren Korob on Twitter to be like, oh my god, we love your music, and he like liked the tweet, which is like uh, the best thing in the world for me. Um, but yeah, like, that's delightful. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, obviously, I could listen to that soundtrack for a million years. Oh, I yeah, it's like some of the most played stuff, like on my phone, period, um, or on my Spotify, period. But basically, a lot of the music from Bastion, a little bit of the music from Transistor, even though that's my favorite game, um, and then a a lot more of the music from Pyre were definitely huge musical influences for the music that's ultimately made um, in Caravan. And I think it kind of starts out very Bastion esque, but like as we brought Travis on board, um, on, on on episode five and after it definitely takes on much more of that like pyre-esque like um electronic um riff on it as well to go back to the idea of samir and like the the wagon in his dreams and the way that it expands as like more people enter his heart um i wanted to ask you about what it means to be an evoker to live this short wondrous life you told ellie that you were and are kind of a cynical misanthrope um but i'm i'm paraphrasing mightily here as as you've let people into your heart you've only become more powerful can you expand on that that notion of what like being an evoker means sure so um 
I would say um, an evoker kind of really represents uh, if, if, we, if we were talking about, say, like all the like arcana and a tarot deck, I would say like the evoker is most like the fool. Right. So it's like this kind of like blank slate that's open for, you know, so many different um, opportunities and experiences and also is highly variable in its nature based on what it is experiencing in its environment. So, um, you know, um, we're going to get much more into the history of evokers and like why they exist at all um, in season two. But as far as like what it shows in season one, um, I just wanted it to be a way to show that like Samir is special because of this specific characteristic he has, right? So, you know, he comes into this canyon, all of these other caravans um, have this policy of kind of like, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. And, you know, he's the only one asking like, well, okay, what, what about justice? Like, like, how do we, you know, care for people who we don't want to, like, outright kill or bang, right? Um, so so uh, I, I wanted to show that, like, he, th- this is kind of a literal way to show that his superpower is something that manifests um, by, by giving it a name. But also it changes him as he brings more people in. So, you know, right. you know he starts to feel more vampiric as Miguel, um, you know, co- comes inside him. So, like, he, he, like, becomes more sensitive to the sun, he mentions in a later episode. And then, you know, obviously um, Banshee's, like, starts turning his hair gray and... And um, and those all sound like largely harmless changes. Um, But I think as you um, if you are a highly empathetic person and you try to feel all empathy for everyone all the time, um, that can, you know, that can destroy you the same way that an evoker bringing in too many identities at once can. Um, And I do I do think you kind of share some of your life force with every other person that you connect to. And that can be beautiful and wonderful. And you could draw a lot of strength from it. And it can be very powerful. But um, I think you also have to like draw careful boundaries and be mindful of like who you let into like, you know, sap your energy sometimes. So yeah, that was just Yeah, so the evoker was just a way to literalize um the all those um ways that his empathy manifests as a superpower i hate i would hate to have called him an empath because i find that word just so um um infantile like i like i like i like no nobody who's an empath has to say that they're an empath right mm-hmm. you know so like, when people are like oh i'm an empath i find that like very disingenuous so that's that, that's why i just wanted like a different name for it and also it's an evoker because um evokers also have um an element of conjuration right so we haven't really gotten to see that just yet but um he doesn't like so samir is not just going to be taking people into his spirit but we might be able to see like how he can call upon them from within his spirit into the outside world which will be um something we might see later on that sounds super yeah, badass I'm excited about it oh again it's that's that very video gamey quality right like it's like 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 final fantasy-esque sure. like you know like maybe you want to like join the world like join the world together in peace and harmony but also if a big ass like final fantasy summon appears out of nowhere you're not gonna complain <laughs> sure um sure. i have one last kind of heavy question for you um so so please take sure. care of yourself as you answer this. Um, there is this debt of of labor and of emotional processing and of being there for him that Carlisle mm-hmm. has accrued through Samir's actions throughout their life and throughout their friendship. And that confrontation that they have at the midpoint of Ring of Fire that culminates in that incredible kiss feels as though it was a, feels to me as though it was a rewritten memory torn from your heart and reforged in a way that ends in victory for mm-hmm. Samir. Is this similar to experiences um, that you've had? I would had? say it absolutely draws on experiences I've had. However, I wouldn't say that it's a rewrite of a memory and that 
Um, I, I, in that, I okay. wish, it, like, I wish I could have had an encounter that ended the way uh, Severe's does, but I, I don't think it, it like, I, I think it's more an amalgam of a lot of, it's an amalgamation of a lot of different experiences I've had that, um, in, in various relationships that have all kind of played out in a very similar dynamic, you know, it looks, so I was like telling you earlier, like I could never envision myself as the doctor, right? I was always the companion. I always saw myself as like a support and you know what that means being like a support in all of these various people's lives and like what kind of, um, debt of labor that creates is something I um, definitely drew on, um, to write that scene. Um, I, I also think I'm much much less forgiving of straight people than Samir is <laughs> um, so yeah yeah like like, <laughs> like 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 truly if I had someone like Carlisle in my life I would be like fuck you dude like I am so over you and like not even give him a chance but again Samir represents like a lot of things that um like a lot of better aspects that are obviously not me right so like he does see the best in people he does give them chances um so and, and that's what allows this scene to play out beautifully in a way that it you know obviously doesn't in real life at least i think but okay my, my question is what what do you think people ought to be mindful of um how how do you make yourself aware if you are carlisle that there is a power imbalance to make sure that they're not doing what he did what is your what is your advice to Carlisle's listening to this interview? I will confess I definitely did not write it as like an instructional um scenario so like i like 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 um i wouldn't say that there is like a definitive thesis statement for like this and and thus like the moral of the story is you should act x y or z way right right. Uh, i kind of really wanted more i i really just kind of wanted to show this story from a perspective that i hadn't seen it before i feel like we've seen lots of stories about like gay guys pining for their straight best friends but it doesn't really go beyond like physical attraction or like just falling for the guy just because he's like cute and handsome and nice and I wanted to show like no you can really fall in love with someone over like shared experience and like right. the things that you've like g- gone through together and you know particularly you know in the case of a lot of queer people like the reason a lot of queer folks like end up being in love with their like straight best friend is because like we were obviously deprived of affection growing up and so like we do latch on to like any person who like treats us like decent human beings so you, you know like like I wanted to incorporate all of those experiences and show like actually this is where this person is coming from you know like the gay best friend who's in love with his straight best friend like is not just like some predatory caricature like um like like those are born from like real feelings and born from trauma and like like part of that is something that carlisle you know knows and part of that is something that carlisle doesn't know right like 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 i think samir calls him out on this like in the interaction like he says like Carlisle, don't tell me you don't know what I want. Like, stop, you know, bullshitting me about this. Um, because I just hadn't seen a lot of interactions in a lot of shows. Like, I, I actually, I just haven't seen any confrontations in media in general that delve very deep into the psychology of the characters. Um, I, I, like, I, I don't want to toot my own horn in that respect. No, but no, I just no. haven't toot seen. Away. Like, I just, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I, I don't mean to say like I'm the only one who's done it, but just in, in any show that I watch, and I watch a confrontation between two characters, like it always seems like their confrontation is very easily solvable by like like either exchanging one important piece of information or just like being able to wrap their head around like holding two realities in you know their mind at once um but 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 i wanted to show a confrontation that like i have with like real people in my life right like i wanted to show like if you if you can like really dive into the psychology of these characters like how much does carlisle know that he's reaping this benefit from samir and like like how much of it is he cognizant of and how much is he not and how much does he allow himself to know about but pretend to not to you know continue to capitalize on it 
Um, and that's kind of just, um, and it's also complicated, not just by queerness, but by race, right? So like, obviously, you know, you know, Samir is obviously a person of color and Carlisle is white. And there's obviously that, you know, uneven power dynamic there inherently. Um, and I feel like I have this relationship with like a lot of like white people in my lives, like even if they're allies, like they might be allies in every respect and like on, you know, on the surface of their minds, like believe that they're making every effort to like do right by people of color. But I think just because of the way racism works, and the way oppression works, you know, it is so deeply ingrained that they can still be subconsciously knowing that they're benefiting from certain oppressive behaviors and still kind of willfully acting on them as long as their conscious mind doesn't touch on it too much. Um, sure. So again, this the, yeah, so so these um so this this whole like um s- ar- argument between the two of them was really just an attempt to show like the psychology of that um, relationship. So if, so if the Carlisles of the world are listening to this, I think. Um, What's really important is to just um, not be afraid of being told some really hard truths and not being afraid of really painful introspection, being brutally honest about um, what you know and what you don't know. Because I I know a lot of well-meaning people will say, oh my gosh, I just had no idea. I didn't think of this. And um, on a certain level, like, I just don't believe that. Um, So so, so I think for me, it was a kind of calling BS on that a little bit. And I think... um, recognizing that even when we don't have the like mal intent in mind um you know obviously it's our actions that matter and um i'm not saying you have to be in love with samir or you know or that you have to like you know capitulate to any person who calls you out on those things but just always being mindful that even among the best of friends like race politics and um gender politics and queer politics like still um are you know, omnipresent in that dynamic and still permeate that um, power dynamic, even if, even among the closest people. Um, Sorry, I I know that's like a really roundabout way to answer your question. No, 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 that's a great answer. And I can say for myself, like having been on the Carlisle end in those call-out conversations, they are very difficult to have, but so worthwhile. Like oh have, so so um, is, can I ask like is this somehow like um, reminiscent of an experience you've had with a person? Not not, uh, not especially. Just what you were talking about now with like a like a call in conversation to be like, did you know that you are reproducing these harms when you behave in that way? Like that's a hard conversation to have. That's like a hard yeah. subject to broach, and it's hard to hear. Um, but like people with whom I have had that conversation. Like, I now have a much more, like, trusting relationship with them. Oh, I- yeah. Ideally, I hope. Um, yeah, like, people people don't go, people don't call you in unless they, like, trust you and, like, are right. making an investment in, like, your long-term relationship. Yeah. So, in the, in the moment where Samir, Samir is the person who gives Carlisle, like, permission to kiss him, there's... It, some sometimes when I listen back to that moment, it seems like Carlisle is dragging it out of Samir, and sometimes it seems like Samir is dragging it out of Carlisle, like the admission of mm-hmm. desire. And I wasn't sure entirely uh-huh. how to read it, and I think ambiguity is powerful and okay, like that's just fine. But I was wondering if you had an understanding of that dynamic in that moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I think you uh, made the right observation in that depending on how many times you listen to it, you can definitely interpret it both ways. And that's not, um, I, 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 I promise that's not um, ambiguity for ambiguity's sake. I mean, it's, it's naughty. It's like tangled, right? 
Yeah, like, I, I just wanted to show, like, these, like, obviously, again, like, I just haven't seen confrontations like this that are complicated, right? Like, in most confrontations I see, like, in media, like, one person has the power and is dragging it out of the other person. And, like, I just don't see that in real life, right? right. So, like, in real life, like, like obviously, obviously, so like if we're just talking about, like, power and how it's exercised, like, obviously, Carlisle is extremely powerful, right? He has been in the canyon for a very long time. He know, he's, he's, he almost frighteningly quickly adapts to, you know, a life of demon slaying. He's been in here for weeks longer than Samir. He has a giant, like, wild caravan that he rides around him. Um, he is, you know, like, tall, white, handsome, like, has gone through life, like, very assured of his abilities. So, obviously, that's, like, like he, he will... He, it will be very hard to like shake someone like him right but also at the same time samir knows exactly how to shake carlisle and like knows exactly like which like pinhole to like to um like that pinhole in his armor to like absolutely break him down so like they're both they're both very powerful people who um can like who are basically like the only people who can kind of bring each other down um and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing um i could talk about samir and carlisle forever i like that like carlisle is really like one of my favorite characters um so but but it's just like they um yeah i i feel like this is how it works in the real world like both people can be powerful at different things right um samir like like obviously like carlisle is trying to obviously carlisle knows what samir wants right so he's playing dumb he knows what samir wants samir calls him out on it so obviously he has to make clear like okay uh, i want samir to admit his affection for me and like then i will be pleased but of course samir goes you know i have affection for you like that much is obvious like you're the one who has withheld it from me and that is a crime like if you want our relationship to like be healthy like you have to like confess to this right right so so both both of them need that from each other and i think i I think like um like yes is the kiss kiss just wish fulfillment like maybe but i also feel like it's kind of the only answer that both of them can give each other like it's like it's like the perfect answer that they can give each other um without kind of conceding any ground but also like (laughs) but also admitting it does that make sense yeah no absolutely it does so what are what are some themes that you want to explore in season two of Caravan? Well, I definitely I don't know if it's a theme. I definitely like want like demon fucking to be like more explicit. So so I, so I guess, so I guess like um like more like I, I just think like sexuality as a theme is definitely something we'll explore more like. I was saying earlier that um, you know I wanted to slowly introduce it to the audience and not come out guns blazing because I didn't want to like shock and alarm people before they understood like why sexuality you know exists in this story and like how eroticism can kind of serve as an exercise in existentialism also. But I also do eventually like want to you know get you know hit the races about like okay and now that we know what this world is about like here is how people actually live in it. So. I think sexuality will definitely be one of the themes. I think um, friendship is always a theme in the show, but I think specifically, like not just friendship, like like kind of like the color of friendship. Um, I, I, th- I think like really like deep, meaningful, powerful friendships require you know struggle and working through these really you know interior thoughts and biases and barriers we put up so that exchange between carlisle and samir is obviously like one of those deep dives into their brains but i think we're going to keep peeling away the layers between them um as we go deeper and deeper into the canyon and seeing like like what are these characters really made of and now that they've con- 
confess their feelings for each other like what does that mean where do they go from there like now that his like fiance is also in the canyon what does that mean <laughs> sure um so yeah so, so so i say sexuality friendship um and i would say um there are definitely themes of like like obviously there's the found family theme but i think also like um real life family will definitely be a theme in season two so we'll finally get to see a little bit more of um where argo and dakota are from and you know why like why does argo feel so strongly about caravans Mm -hmm. like why does he have such a hard-on for that concept and like where does that come from um and you know what does it mean for um you know dakota to look at mama bang bang as a mother figure um so 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 so, like yeah i would would say like literal family in addition to found family would be new for season two um cool and i don't really I, i wish i could say that there was like one word for this but i don't have like one word to describe it but I, w- I think i would say that um just the general um l- like the like the the meaningfulness of actually uh, okay so so i guess the way i'll phrase it is this like just the general power of sacrifice and like what that means and how it can either you know it, it can it might ennoble you or it might just be um self-serving um and kind of like looking into that relationship a little bit more thank you so much this has been such a privilege to talk to you today i I, it's been such an honor i i I honestly am just like perpetually surprised that you know who i am or give me the time of day um i I, I love everything you do and i love the show so thank you so much (laughs) thank you and come on back anytime if you want to support the work being done by toe and the caravan team mosey on over to patreon.com slash caravan radio and become one of their patrons or as toe likes to call them they're lords of hell You can also get yourself a Grand Duchy in the 8th Circle of Hell with us by tossing a little simony our way at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Or you can buy sweet merchandise at our store, radiodramarevival.com slash shop. We've got shirts, and they have our logo, and they are so comfortable. But you're not here to hear about shirts. You are here to learn some hot canyon facts. (coughs) Will, this is your time. Hey, pals. Let's talk about how big the Grand Canyon is. Spoilers! It's very big. I pulled up some numbers and statistics and comparisons across various different websites, and I am here to bring you some news that, you know, when I started doing the research for this, I knew it was really big, um, but then I started getting into weirder metrics, and then I scared myself. So happy Halloween! The Grand Canyon, at its widest, is about 18 miles wide. Average about 10 miles wide. It winds 277 miles if we are measuring it from where it starts to where it ends, which is about a drive from DC to Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay, so this is pretty normal. It's about 1,900 square miles total, which means you could fit a whole Delaware in this thing. It is a mile deep. You would need four empire state buildings stacked on top of each other to get from the bottom to the top but then i started looking at like how many things you would need to fill the grand canyon up um and that's when we go from four empire state buildings to four million empire state buildings if we wanted to fill it to the brim um it's over a and a I did not make this word up. It's over a quadrillion gallons of water is how much you would need to fill it up or other liquid, you know. Um, It can fit every river in the world into it 
at once and still not be full. It is 1.7 billion Olympic swimming pools. And my favorite statistic, if you were just gonna kind of cram human people into it, uh, it would take 65 trillion people to fill it. Now, a reminder, there are about 7 billion people on Earth. So, like, we don't even come close. We, we, would, be, we would be a joke. We could just all stand in there, and the canyon would be like, yeah, so? So, uh, that's how big the Grand Canyon is. Happy Arizona, happy Halloween. And hey, hey, listener, you give me less existential dread than this does by a lot. Love you, bye. And now let us sound the traditional end of episode gong, followed by the traditional post-Halloween torrent of bats. The sounds of that gong and those bats tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>